Okay, good morning. We're looking at the book of 2 Samuel. Last week we looked at chapter 8. We're looking at chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 9, that's uh, page 260 if you're using the church Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll read the whole chapter. Last week we had kind of a summary chapter that told us a bunch about different things that happened throughout David's reign. We're looking at a specific event now, a little bit of a shift. Second Samuel chapter 9, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a younger son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, This morning, as we traveled here on your day to gather with your people, we saw you in the world around us. And now, we've read in your word a fuller revelation of who you are and what you have revealed to us. We ask that you would help us to see what you would have us to do We ask that you would help us to see what you have done for us, what you have promised for us, and what you've given us in Jesus. 
Lord, I ask for the people gathered in this room or those watching from afar that they might have a conscious experience of their salvation. Lord, let us not live uncertain of what we are or where we're going, but bear witness in our spirits that we are your children and enable us this day to say, each one, I know my Redeemer. In whose name we pray, amen. What if I told you there was a magic bullet, something that would improve the quality of your daily life, your children's chance of success in the world, our family's health, our values as a society, something that is inexpensive, simple to produce, and within the reach of pretty much everyone. So begins a book by Miriam Weinstein called The Surprising Power of Family Meals, How Eating Together Makes Us Smarter, Stronger, Healthier, and Happier. She goes on to describe all different research that's been gathered from different areas of different scientific fields on the value of family dinners. Uh, For kids, it's correlated to just about everything. Better grades, better vocabulary, better readers, lower risk for underage smoking, drinking, drug use, and truancy. For adults, family dinners can lead to less stress, more connection, healthier meals, more laughter, less addiction to your phone, hopefully. The list goes on. Now, I'm not here this morning to convince you of the value of family dinners, though it's something to think about. I'm more interested in convincing you that you have been invited to a family dinner, the family dinner of King Jesus. But to see that, we've got to get to know this man named Mephibosheth a bit. I don't know if you related to him at all as we were reading through this story, but I think you may actually have a lot in common with him. So, who is Mephibosheth? Well, he is a pariah. Okay, that'll be my first point, the pariah. Now, if you're not totally certain what a pariah is, it's someone who is an outcast. And and I'll help you out even more because I actually have a subtitle for my first point, a crippled, exiled, enemy, orphan. Okay, so the pariah, a crippled, exiled, enemy, orphan. That's who Mephibosheth is. This isn't the first time we've met Mephibosheth. You know, he actually, we we first learned about him back in chapter 4, verse 4 of this book, 2 Samuel, and we're told the story of how he was crippled. It's a tragic story. When he was five years old, his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan go out to fight the Philistines, and they're both killed in this tragic, this great defeat of Israel on Mount Gilboa. You may remember this. It's the last section of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, So we read it a while back. And so after the defeat, his nurse uh, grabs him, and she flees. She's evidently concerned that either the Philistines or the next king, David, will want to get rid of Mephibosheth. In the rush to leave, he falls. Uh, At five years old, maybe he fell from a horse or from a cart. We don't really know, but somehow he falls, 
and he's crippled for the rest of his life. Now, in Israelite society, to be crippled like this would be a triple burden compared to uh, today's world. In, in, <laughs> there weren't really a lot of desk jobs back then or a lot of handicapped uh, bathrooms back then. If you were a man, you were a fighter and you were a farmer. That was basically it. So a guy like Mephibosheth, he's helpless in that society. And, you know, he's not just excluded from the physical world of being a man. He's also excluded from the religious world. In, in Jewish law, holiness, right, which is very important, was, was connected to wholeness. So animals that had a deformity, they couldn't be sacrificed. And... Uh, People with any kind of deformity couldn't serve in any religious capacity. They couldn't be priests. And you see, in practice, this actually led to, it tended to extend beyond the religious world into uh, the broader society, this kind of exclusion. And so someone who was deformed ended up being excluded and separated from uh, some of the most important places and events in their society. But it's really more for Mephibosheth because this is the loss that sort of defines his life. It's the thing that is always there with him, reminding him of what, what he's lost. His family, um, his, his home, his, his identity as a prince of Israel. Every time he is mentioned in the Bible, his lameness is also mentioned. In fact, sometimes it's the only thing mentioned. You may notice the first time that Ziba refers to him in verse 3, he doesn't even say his name. He just says that crippled guy. And this is where he is very relatable. Because for all of us, there are certain losses that we cannot walk away from. They're part of us, like legs that won't work anymore. The loss of a loved one or a traumatic experience or a broken relationship or a failure in our career or a weakness in our body or a, a physical or a mental defect. Where are you like Mephibosheth? not whole. Well, Mephibosheth is also exiled. He is not at home. Ziba tells David in verse 4 that he lives in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Maybe you know what it's like to stay in someone else's home for an extended period of time. If you like the people, it's nice for a little bit, but eventually you kind of want your own space. It gets a little bit Old after a while, Mephibosheth does not have his own space anywhere. He lives in Lodabar, which in Hebrew means no pasture. No pasture. That does not sound like a land flowing with milk and honey. Lodabar was way up in sort of the northern part of Gilead. Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan River. 
Uh, and it was sort of uh, just south of the Sea of Galilee. So basically pretty far up north, about as far away as you could get from David and from his homeland, the land of Benjamin, which was down where David was close to Jerusalem. Like Adam and Eve, exiled from the Garden of Eden to a land of thorns and hard work, Mephibosheth is exiled to a land of no pasture. Maybe there are moments in your life that you have recognized that this is not your home. The Bible tells us we are exiles. After all, we are also children of Adam and Eve. We live by the sweat of our brow. Even the best things, like, you know, a baby being born, are still, they still happen through great pain. You may be tempted to feel like this is your home for a little while, and there are good things in this world. But this is not your home. It's a way station. It's an outpost for the kingdom. It has meaning. But only as it reflects and is founded upon the reality of your true home. Mephibosheth is also an enemy of the king. He is the surviving heir of David's great enemy Saul. Uh, remember, it was totally normal. It was expected for a new dynasty to eliminate all survivors of the old dynasty. It's not pretty, but in the ancient Near East, where David lived, that's what you did. Uh, Basha, Zimri, and Jehu are three kings later on in Israelite history who all do this exact thing. So I'm not just making this up. It happened. Mephibosheth is born into a rival family. So he is automatically an enemy of David's. You and I are also born into a rival family because we are descended from the first man, Adam, who was the first but not the last to rebel against God. And just like Adam dismissed God's rule when he ate of the forbidden fruit, we dismiss God's rule all the time. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires which battle within you? If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point of it, is guilty of breaking all of it. That's what the book of James tells us. Without some sort of intervention, Mephibosheth is stuck. He is an enemy of the king. In the same way, without some sort of intervention, you are stuck as an enemy of God. Lastly, Mephibosheth is an orphan. He has no father to care for him. He has no inheritance to rely upon. He has no family meal to be a part of, which Miriam Weinstein tells us is the silver bullet. He's on his own. He's dependent on the kindness of this man, uh, Machir. This may be the way you can least relate to Mephibosheth, yet there are at least a couple ways in which you are an orphan like Mephibosheth. First, you need an advocate. You need someone who will stand up 
and say on the day of judgment, this one is mine. I will provide for them. Second, you need an eternal inheritance. Nothing you inherit in this life will be going with you to the next. And, and this life is a blip compared to eternity. So what inheritance awaits you there? And finally, you need an invitation to the family dinner table. The Bible often talks about uh, and describes heaven as a great feast, a great dinner, right? Jesus spoke of heaven in this, this way often. Uh, he told several parables that described heaven uh, and the next life as a great feast. And you can even go back to the Old Testament. There's this great image in, in Isaiah 25 uh, where God makes a great feast on his holy mountain, Mount Zion, and he makes it for all peoples. It describes the rich food that he prepares for them. He's going to swallow up death forever and wipe away all tears. This is a family dinner you do not want to miss. You need an invitation to the family dinner. So now we know Mephibosheth a bit better. He is the pariah. He's a crippled, exiled, enemy orphan. And like us, he is powerless to change that identity. He's stuck in a land of no pasture. There's only one glimmer of hope for him. The promise. So this is my second point now. The promise. This whole episode, this whole story starts up when David wants to know in verse 1 if there's anybody left of Saul's house that he can show kindness to uh, for the sake of his friend, Jonathan. Don't forget Jonathan, right? His good friend of the past. You see, David had made a promise to Jonathan. Actually, the biblical word for this promise is covenant. Uh, here's one way to think of a covenant. It's a promise to love even when there's nothing that would compel you to love except your promise. In fact, it's a promise to love even in situations where it might be difficult to love, sacrificial even. It's unexpected, undeserved love. That word kindness in our text, it appears three times, it links what David does for Mephibosheth with his promise, his, his covenant with Jonathan. It's the Hebrew word Chesed, which in the Bible describes why God promises to us, why he covenants to us that he will save those who are willing to turn to him. The reason he says over and over and over again in the Bible that he is willing to save people is because of his Chesed love. This same loyal love is what David is expressing here to Mephibosheth. Notice, he even specifies in verse 3, you'll see that he wants to show the kindness of God, God's kindness, God's hesed love. He wants to show Mephibosheth. Nobody would expect David to do this. This is not how people who care about themselves are supposed to act. He's the king. He can't be acting this way towards his enemies. That's not safe. Well, Jonathan has been dead for 15 to 20 years by now. Surely David could ignore this promise from long ago. 
But David illustrates for us the power of a covenant to command faithfulness far into the future, even at great personal cost. There are two important applications for us here. First, we need to see in David's example the significance of any covenantal promises that we have made. As Christians, we make promises. Uh, When we become a member of a church, we make promises. When we get married, we make promises. When we baptize our children, we make promises. And when we ordain new elders and deacons, we make promises. A promise becomes truly meaningful, not when it's easy to keep, but when it is difficult. And it's these promises at the center of our core relationships that give us the security and the stability to live our lives openly and honestly and truly with one another. Love that truly loves is based on a covenant, not feelings. That is the only type of love that you can feel secure in. And if you know you have failed to fully keep those promises that you have made, well then hear the second application. God promises anyone who cries out to him for salvation through Christ that same loyal love with which you can feel secure. Even if all your other relationships have been trashed. Jesus does not reject the pariah. He came for the pariah. He welcomes the cripple. He embraces the exile. He dies for the enemy and he claims the orphan. For Jonathan's sake, David seeks out Mephibosheth. For Jesus' sake, God seeks you. Where do you think David learned to act like this? He learned it from God, who made a covenant with him when he was just a boy, that he would be king. And we've seen God kept that promise. We saw last week in chapter 8, God kept his promises to give the land of Israel rest through the reign of David. Here, David acts like his heavenly father, and he keeps his own promises. This should give you confidence that God's covenant is a safe place for you to stand. It is a message that emerges again and again, story after story, person after person throughout the Bible. So what exactly does David do for Mephibosheth? He does much more than just not kill him. That is the bare minimum of what he actually promised to Jonathan. He told Jonathan that he would not cut off his descendants. Well, David does much more than that. And so we turn to my third point, the adoption. The adoption. Now, I'm not trying to argue that uh, David is legally adopting Mephibosheth here in this text. But I do think that adoption is a very helpful way to view what he does for Mephibosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth is an orphan. Uh, He needs 
an advocate, he needs an inheritance, and he needs a family dinner. I think David actually provides all of these things here. Uh, Mephibosheth, he's helpless. But then David, the king, advocates for him. First, he seeks him out in a faraway country, the land of no pasture. And then when Mephibosheth comes, uh, probably trembling in fear, thinking that what any sane king would do in this situation is eliminate him, David says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. And David restores his inheritance. He personally recruits Ziba, orders him to be his servant, him and all his many sons and servants, to take care of Mephibosheth and his land. And then finally, he welcomes Mephibosheth to his own table. And I want to zoom in on this last image a bit because it's clearly the primary one here. Notice how many times it's mentioned. In, in, in verse 7, David makes this promise to Mephibosheth, and it's really the climax of that promise is this promise that he will sit at David's table. And then uh, in verse 10, he mentions it again when he's talking to Ziba. And then in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, the narrator uh, mentions it again. And again in verse 13, to close out the story, again and again, this theme comes up of Mephibosheth eating at David's table. This is clearly designed to be the most significant of the blessings that David gives him. And you've got to understand the significance of a meal in Hebrew culture. Meals, of course, have great significance in our culture, but even more so, I think, in, in Hebrew culture. Every meal was viewed as sacred for Israelites because it was something that God provided for them. They viewed every meal as coming directly from God's hands. From the fruit trees in Eden, where God provided for Adam and Eve, to the manna and quail of the wilderness, where God provided for Israel in their wanderings, to the, uh, the milk and honey of the promised land. All, all the food that they were given was recognized as coming directly from him. And so these meals, they, they brought you into communion with God, as well as those who ate with you. Uh, and therefore, it was, you know, who you allowed to eat with you, that was very significant. And so Jews were not allowed to share a table with outsiders. Sharing a meal with someone showed that they belonged. So you take that context and then you add to it what our text describes uh, about Mephibosheth's presence at David's table. In verse 11, it says that he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David is not just throwing a bone to Mephibosheth because, well, he can afford it anyway. Uh, he's not just trying to make sure this poor guy doesn't starve. He is claiming it. He's telling all his people, this man belongs in the royal family for the sake of my friend Jonathan and the promise that I made him. Every day I will have fellowship with him, like with my own sons. This is a powerful image of the adoption that God offers you. He says, Come, sit at my table. 
There's no price you have to pay, right? Mephibosheth couldn't give David anything. Isaiah 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my faithful love, my hesed is the word there, promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples. David's actions here are a witness to you. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. At the end of this text, in verses 12 and 13, we're given a picture of Mephibosheth's new life, all the blessings that he now has. He has a family, right? We hear about his young son, Micah, uh, and uh, later genealogies will tell us that Micah gave him a pile of grandchildren. Um, so he had that joy, and we're told that Ziba and his servants are now serving him, so he's taken care of. Uh, we learn that he lives in the city of the king, and we learn, of course, for the fourth time, that he sits at the king's table. Yet, how does the text end? Now he was lame in both feet, right? He's still deformed. It's the last thing the text mentions. He can't get away from it. His loss is seen through a new lens, of course, right? And now he's blessed despite his loss. But it's still there. He's not yet whole. And this reminds us that sitting at the table of David is not the goal. It's just a glimpse of the goal. The goal is the table of Jesus. He does heal the cripple. He welcomes in the Gentile to his table. This is how we ought to approach life as well. We don't expect God to make us whole in this life. We do expect to see our losses and our deformities through the lens of new blessings. And even as we commune with our King truly in this life, through the Lord's Supper, through our fellowship as believers, through prayer, through the preaching of the word, we always hold in our minds an image of the greater feast where we will be made whole. Would it not be foolish for Mephibosheth to reject David's offer here? Do not reject the Lord's offer to you. Do not despise the table of the king. He is good and faithful. He is strong and gentle. He speaks to you this morning and he invites you to a family meal. If you know your guilt, come to God, nothing in your hands, and hear him say to you, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of of your Savior, Jesus. And I will restore to you 
all the inheritance of your ancient father, Adam, and you shall eat at my table always. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, your promises to us are good. They're great. They're unbelievable at times until we see them fulfilled in wonderful ways throughout Scripture. Help us, Lord, to learn from Mephibosheth, from David, and to see in David the image of our Savior welcoming us to his table. Lord, help us to remember that though we have losses, great losses in this life, you will make us whole, complete. And indeed, Lord, as we trust in you, as with faith we look to you as our king, we will see these losses through the lens of new blessings. Lord, give us faith this morning to know you and to know the power of your resurrection, which gives us hope for this life and that which is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.